I like to think of Intel as providing the brain power behind the world's compute. So whether that happens to be in your PC, your laptop, services using out at the edge, through the network and into the core data center. I've believed for, again, the past several years that the role of the CIO just continues to increase in importance. The entire business now runs on IT. Like IT isn't a support function anymore. It's the heart of the business. And that's a lot of responsibility. IT is not just infrastructure or the backbone. It's actually moved into every single business unit. So all of the business units have their own developers at a company. They have their own services they're trying to provide. And so that connection has to be really strong. This is Siona TV. My name is Andrew Dekkers. I'm here today with Lisa Spellman, who's the corporate VP and general manager of the Intel Xeon products at Intel Corporation. A very warm welcome, Lisa. Thank you. It's great to be here. Lisa, you studied business administration, marketing, and finance at the University of Washington, and you have been with Intel since the year 2000. So tell us a little bit more about yourself. What's your background and who are you really? Yes. Well, thank you again so much for having me. So if I describe myself in a really uh, short sentence, I'd say I'm a business leader, I'm a technology leader, I'm a mother, and I'm a pickleball player. So these are, you know, my <laughs> defining characteristics if I try to really boil it down. But um, I did, you know, I graduated with a business degree, came right out of university, and I joined Intel. And when I started, I thought, gosh, uh, I'm going to stay here a year because that'll look good on my CV. And then I'll have this great, you know, big company tech experience. And here we are heading into my, you know, 23rd year. And I've continued to have these wonderful experiences with the opportunity to, again, be in finance, uh, be in product marketing and product management. I've had the chance to be in technical sales. And I've actually had the opportunity to spend five years of my career in Intel IT managing global infrastructure mm -hmm. and operations. So um, I've just had this great uh, breadth of experience that has been so fulfilling. And now I have a wonderful job being the general manager of a product line and really having the opportunity to not just contribute to Intel's business, but I, I genuinely feel I have the opportunity to provide products and services that improve the lives of everyone on earth. So Lisa, Give us the big picture of Intel. It's a household name. We all use uh, your products, uh, but tell us a little bit more. What does Intel really stand for and what is it that it does really, really yep. well? You know, I like to think of Intel as providing the brain power behind the, the world's compute. So whether that happens to be in your PC, your laptop, um, services using out at the edge, through the network and into the core data center. And if you think, Intel is really the foundation of cloud and cloud services that are delivered around the globe for consumers, for us as individuals, for entertainment, also for so much of the world's work that gets done these days. So um, we are a hardware company, we're a software company, and we're a manufacturing company. Mm -hmm. And that manufacturing arm is so critically important to us. We think it's critically important to the global supply chain to ensure that companies around the world will always have access to that uh, so important uh, compute. One of the things I like most about my job is this ability to help our customers 
pull out the value of these incredibly advanced technologies. So not everyone at our customer needs to know all the nitty gritty details of what a a Xeon processor does, but they have the opportunity Mm -hmm. to benefit from the capabilities that we've built in. So helping customers find that return on investment, helping them deliver their digital business transformation is one of the most exciting aspects. An area where we've put a ton of focus over the past several years has been our investment in AI. It's just growing so fast. It's an explosive uh, phase of growth right now. And we've been setting the stage to ensure, again, that businesses around the globe have the opportunity to take advantage of all the goodness that it can provide while also being focused on the ethical use and the democratization of AI, making sure that it's not only accessible to just a few that can afford um, mm-hmm. the, you know, the biggest thing. So we really want to push that accessibility for all. Okay, and we're gonna talk about all these different things, but let's talk maybe, maybe let's start from, from the top. I mean, you're, you're in business more than 20 years, so you know what's cooking out there. We live in special uh, times. There's, there's a lot of turmoil going on. Things are changing faster and faster. So where do you see um, the biggest challenges that, that companies that you work with, where do you see the biggest challenges that they're facing today? Yeah, you know, Intel is a company that itself has gone through tremendous amount of change. We actually started in the memory mm-hmm. business and then had the opportunity yeah. to provide the world's first general purpose processor. And from then, you know, you could say the rest is history, but so many evolutions there, uh, just working on how do we deliver for our customers across this huge span of workloads. Like I said, in your laptop all the way to the most high performance computing data centers. So we really are, you know, working to cover it all. And then also mm-hmm. working on all of those technologies that connect to that processor to ensure that, again, customers have a, a good experience. When I think about the challenges customers are facing today, you know, you even mentioned this g- levels of global uncertainty. I talked about the global supply chain and the security of that supply chain mm-hmm. being incredibly important these days, and, and we invest there heavily. I also see just such a incredible pace of change. If you look at business 10 years ago compared to today and the digitization that's happened and just the amount of industries that have been disrupted or have, in smart cases, taken the opportunity to disrupt themselves. Just about everything is mm-hmm. done differently now than it was 10 years ago, even if it's still providing the same service. And, and you look at industries like mm-hmm. um, hospitality and, and tourism, and you see the uh, hotel has had so much disruption with the advent of uh, companies like Airbnb. And the hotels have not stood still. So those companies have also mm-hmm. innovated and are now uh, renting out houses. And it's just an, a small yep. example of the way that that evolution of the services that companies offer, even when they're in a very well-defined market, have evolved and how those services have fundamentally become technology services. It's all done through applications. It's all done through the ability to mm-hmm. search and find and customize and specialize. So it's hard for me to think of a single industry that hasn't transitioned into being a digitally led service. Okay. And so what does that mean? I mean, um, CRNet, we're a community for CIO digital leaders around the, around the globe. So where do you see the role and, and, and uh, the IT and digital strategies play a role to support organizations 
in, in facing these challenges? You know, I've believed for, again, the past several years that the role of the CIO just continues to increase in importance. Um, the entire mm-hmm. business now runs on IT. Like IT isn't a support function anymore. It's it's the heart mm-hmm. of the business. And that's a lot of responsibility. Yeah. And in some cases, it can be a change in charter. At the same time, all CIOs have gone through this journey of what does it mean to um, live and deliver services in a cloud-first world? And there was a time there mm-hmm. where the narrative and, and every CEO was, was pressuring the CIO to tell me about our cloud-first strategy, tell me about how you know we're moving, how we're uh, changing everything. I think a lot of that has come back into balance now, and it's a cl- cloud smart mm-hmm. and a cloud architecture strategy. So you see so much um, private cloud, hybrid cloud, and the the much smarter utilization of the public cloud mm-hmm. in order to, again, provide services, support developers. I mean, you think of uh, all these industries that... Um, Again, a decade ago, they didn't even have developers. It wasn't part of what was mm-hmm. required. But now that application level service is fundamental to how you connect with your customers, how you personalize your services. So I just see that role of IT um, transforming from having been just help me manage the cost down, like bring the cost down, uh, keep us secure, mm-hmm. into keep us secure and and be the underpinnings of how we're going to grow this business. Okay. Now... You're in Intel focusing on the data center uh, business. So how, in, in, uh, if we talk about IT strategy, digital strategy, that companies have completely turned around. It's now, like you say, the, the engine of, of companies. So what's the impact uh, that we see on, on the data centers? And, and what have you seen change over the last 10 years in the data center business? Yeah, um, again, that, that pace of innovation and, and pace of evolution. So if you look back 10 years, it was the dawn of the cloud. And I, I touched on this, but you had so many um, people that were running their IT infrastructure as um, at times a very uh, static set of invested in hardware connected to private networks, moving data inside the house. And now you just mm-hmm. look at, again, the way that services are provided, how many businesses are you know, connected directly to their consumer, the use of that cloud architecture in order to drive that fundamental flexibility, as well as increase mm-hmm. the capacity within the same hardware investment. We found over the years that every time we add compute capability, the demand for compute mm-hmm. capability goes up. So it it truly is, in our view, uh, a nearly insatiable requirement. And so o- over mm-hmm. that last 10 years, you see this spreading not just from, again, major cloud service providers delivering consumer uh, services or applications, but you see it happening into just about every industry there is possible. So um, the digitization of all of the data, the need to protect it and the ability to analyze it, um, store it, access it around the globe has mm-hmm. become just fundamental to the definition of what does IT success look like. The other challenge we see too is that IT is not just the um, infrastructure or the backbone. It's actually moved into every single business unit. So all of the business units have their own developers uh, at a company. They have their own services they're trying to provide. And so that connection has to be really strong. I think it's changed some of the relationships that the CIO needs to have 
inside of the company. Mm-hmm. And you know, when I was in Intel IT, I was at the time that I was there in my career was at the beginning of this move to cloud. And we went through some of those uh, growing pains and, and figuring it out. Um, and it, it is a journey. It's not an overnight. Um, but once you've set that infrastructure up, you've put yourself in a position where you are so much more um, flexible and able to respond. Behind all of that, Intel has continued to invest to ensure we're providing the right sustainability of our solutions so that we're continually increasing the performance for our customers while pulling down the power that's required. We have continued to Mm -hmm. add in accelerators for the workloads that demand the most compute cycles. Again, that's AI, that can be database management, that can be in network packet processing. So that's the areas where we're really focusing our unique innovation in order to allow Mm -hmm. our customers to get X factor improvements in both performance and performance Mm -hmm. per watt, because we know how important that is. Yep. Let's talk a little bit about the, uh, the your data center business. I mean, um, with your Xeon products, how, how big is that part, the data center business of the total Intel uh, pile, let's say? And, and where do you see the biggest growth opportunities? Yep. You know, the the uh, Xeon business is, you know, a, a $20 billion a year business or so. And, uh, you know, we're continuing to find new opportunities to grow that. I, I talked a little bit about network. We've expanded the applicability of Xeon to be able to mm-hmm. now handle what used to be fixed function ASICs that we're servicing, you know, one part of the network workload. So we've driven consolidation and virtualization of those workloads and done a ton mm-hmm. of work in the software industry with a, a, a bunch of our partners in order to make it so that your, you know, network can run on Xeon. If you're driving along on the um, highway and you see those, you know, towers uh, that are sometimes very cleverly disguised as trees and hidden, you'll think and look at that. And every single one of those has a Xeon sitting uh, out there at, at the edge, um, helping provide those network services. So we're continually looking for mm-hmm. ways to expand how Xeon, the product line that I manage, can better service the, the world. Another area I touched on before mm-hmm. is AI. You know, we started this journey back in, you know, 2017, 2018, adding in unique AI accelerators to increase the performance of both inference and training on a Xeon CPU. A lot of people think that AI must be delivered on a GPU, and GPUs provide a ton of value, especially for really huge workloads and uh, very intense training. But the world has a tremendous amount of installed Xeon infrastructure that is not fully utilized. Mm -hmm. And when you have the opportunity to utilize that capacity, you're again delivering a wonderful performance per watt solution and you're increasing the value of your total cost of ownership because you're taking an Mm -hmm. asset you already own and need for your general purpose infrastructure and you're turning it into an AI asset as well. So we just see a lot Mm -hmm. of positive um, momentum and, and movement and growth 
So those are two examples of the way that we've um, not only seen the markets evolve, but are personally driving to evolve the Xeon business and make sure that it it stays yep. applicable for um, all of our customers' evolving requirements. Yeah. Now the the data center and the processor business is a highly competitive business, right? So so how do you make sure? And Intel has done so for many many decades already. How do you make sure that you stay ahead, that you stay competitive, yep. that you're leading the pack? Yeah. It is a competitive business. It's a uh, challenge. There's, it, it's a business that there's always challengers trying to get into. So there's a couple things mm -hmm. that we focus on. One is, of course, first, uh, our customers. What do they need? So mm -hmm. listening is a learned skill. I, I really don't think many people are born ready to listen. I think it's a learned skill. <laughs> and so we really focus on how do we get those requirements in and how are we getting you know the broadest breadth of them before we make these um, choices. People might not know this, but making a feature add into silicon is a three and four year journey, best case. I mean, these things it takes a long time to develop, to test and and to get ready. The second thing I want to highlight besides the customer requirements is the ecosystem. So we're just really big believers in the open ecosystem and driving and delivering the broadest open ecosystem of any data center microprocessor. And we have worked for mm -hmm. over 20 years in the data center space specifically in order to build those partnerships build up that uh, network of companies and communities that we engage with so that every generation, they're ready for the newest features. They're ready to uh, pull through that value. They're set to offer you know, uh, performance, sustainability characteristics, um, and continue to um, you know, engage with our collective or shared end customers so that mm -hmm. they can get value right out of the box, as we call it. So that ecosystem investment and those partnerships are just absolutely fundamental to what we drive. Like hardware without software is nothing. Software without hardware is nothing. And putting the two together is really where the magic happens. So uh, Lisa, you talked about partnerships and, and being very, very important. Uh, you also talked about an open software uh, partnership there. Tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah, it is, um, you know, foundational for us. So uh, Intel's actually um, the number one uh, Linux code contributor and has been for several years. Again, we're thought of as a hardware and manufacturing company, but we're actually super invested on the software side too. And just an example of, you know, we have this decades long partnership with Red Hat. And we consider ourselves just like a, a center of that open source ecosystem working together and driving this transition that I talked about from, you know, how do you get from just managing IT infrastructure into truly delivering a, a digital asset that serves your entire company's growth, you know, that hybrid multi-cloud infrastructure um, collaborating together to ensure that every generation we've got the the right features and capabilities upstreamed uh, that we're ready to go that Red Hat's providing like the service level that's required to be enterprise class and and we take seriously that work together 
of delivering mm-hmm. joint solutions and um, being in a position where our customers can rely on us. Like they know we're working together. They know we're setting the the foundation for software defined infrastructure and that every generation we're gonna continue to evolve, advance, get better and, and be there to uh, support customers. So that's an example of where I see open and supported and that ecosystem partnership just kind of coming together to deliver customer value. Okay. Now, Lisa, you're in the privileged position that you can look a little bit in the future, right? You're looking, you are busy what's going to come on the market in three, four, five uh, years. So tell us a little bit, give us a glimpse of what is a, that, what, what can we expect? Tell us a little bit about the, the data center roadmap that you have and what you're most excited about. Yep. You know, it is true. I do spend um, an inordinate amount of time in my life when I think about it, talking about 2026, 2027, 2028. And, you know, I feel like it's almost like it's tomorrow, but I do recognize there is a few years uh, to get through first. When we look mm-hmm. out into uh, that time frame, um, we really are looking at solving um, customer problems and challenges and this insatiable demand for compute at a more system level. So I know I, you know, mm-hmm. I manage a microprocessor business, but that all sits within a, a system architecture. And we're, we're really trying to bring together the best of not just Intel, but the whole ecosystem to approach these um, problems of data movement, data storage, data processing um, together into a true system level view to give customers mm-hmm. that absolute best performance per dollar and per watt of power that they drive. Mm-hmm. We continue to see um, AI on this, you know, upward trajectory. In some ways, I even look at it and say there's two buckets of workloads. There's AI workloads and there's all the other workloads. Um, and I think as far as size, you know, they'll come into balance right now that all the other workloads are bigger. But I think the AI, the growth is just mm-hmm you know, phenomenal. So, you know, we look at how those AI capabilities will essentially infiltrate every single workload and become a part of them. Mm-hmm. And and how do we best um, prepare, not just ourselves, but put our customers in um, with the right technology and tools in order to address those. The last one I wanna talk, talk about when I think about the future is security. And, you know, mm-hmm. uh, I've, I've worked in the security space for um, I, actually over a decade now. And one of the interesting things is the um, chief information security officer has gone from, let's just be honest, the person that everyone said, oh, no, they're going to make me do something. They're going to make <laughs> me do a training or I have to slow down the performance of my capability because they're going to make me put some controls around it to a, a, a fundamental and foundational leader at the company. There is nothing Mm -hmm. more sacred than the data. So when we look at our investments, we want to provide the absolute most secure, you know, bar none hardware underpinning in order for secure software to be built on top. And we take that responsibility Mm -hmm. in the industry very seriously. And, And we take it actually so far back as not even just what's in the actual silicon as far as security features, but even the security of our supply chain and every unit as we run it through our manufacturing process and the security of that unit 
before it gets to our customer. So we really are mm-hmm. looking at this security as a complete end-to-end, you know, connected value that we want to deliver to customers. Yeah. So, and I mean, out there, and, and especially with AI and, and, and exploding data volumes, I mean, the, the demand for compute power is just exploding as well. I mean, it's, it's exponential growth that we're seeing there and sort of has a big impact on, 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 uh, on sustainability, right? I mean, today, what is it? All IT systems around the world, they, they, uh, uh, they use one to 2% of, of uh, global energy and that's gonna grow to three, 4%. So, so, so how, how, are we, how the hell are we gonna make sure that we that we contain that, that we that we keep that under control? And 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 how do you I mean you're in the in the center of this basically. How do what's what's your vision on this? How can we how can we really control this? Um you know that that two percent growing to uh four percent is uh it's mind-boggling when you you know step back and think about it. So I, I do believe we have an obligation to uh, address this and the uh, on the really positive side, the movement has gone so far beha- beyond where it started with some levels of um, green marketing, where the the focus was on I just I need to be able to say the things about how I'm green. This is or or um, honestly, like you were planting trees, which is awesome. Like I, I'm not disparaging that, but it has now become like a fundamental requirement. You can, mm-hmm. we have customers who are, they have space that they've purchased, they have cooling, they've got like the whole infrastructure set up and they can't fill their racks because they've run out of power that they can pull from the wall. And, uh, you know, energy costs are exploding back to when you talked about global instability, you can see spikes, you know, like this all over the place. So the energy efficiency has become a business imperative, not a nice to have or a marketing characteristic. So mm-hmm. we um, are investing in this in two ways. The first is, again, back to how we manufacture our products. So we um, are working towards you know net zero carbon emissions. We run the greenest silicon manufacturing operation uh, on, in the globe. Uh, we use more uh, recycled energy. We recycle wastewater. We recycle the heat. We actually use the heat from our manufacturing processes that it kicks off in order to heat our buildings and to uh, heat the water in, in our buildings. So we um, have made tremendous progress in delivering that most sustainable uh, manufactured silicon in the world. Mm-hmm. But then there's the whole what happens once you start operating it. And that's the second area of investment. So in each generation, our um, goal is, again, increase that compute power, that capability, Mm -hmm. that performance, while bringing down the power that's required to hit the same level of performance as the generation before. We've also added in features, and I'll just, I'll talk to one, it's called optimized power mode. I just want to use it as an example, not to get down into, you know, the nitty gritty, but What optimized power mode does is it allows our customers. So once it's deployed in your data center, you know, out in the field, you can choose with very simple bio settings, literally like easy button, click on, click off to run in an optimized power mode. And this is something where you might take down the power draw by 20 ish percent while only degrading the performance Mm -hmm. by two to three percent. 
So if you think of a lot of the workloads that customers run, they actually don't require the absolute peak most performance that can be delivered, or they don't require that mm -hmm. all day, every day. So you can make these little changes and have a measurable difference in your power consumption. I, I sort of liken it to electric vehicles where, you know, uh, people might have a charger at their house and they set their charging to the time of the day when 20%. energy demand is the lowest <laughs> and they get the, you know, better pricing. This we're, we're working to give our customers the ability to dynamically manage their power in that same way so that they can uh, you know, take control. A and we see um, very real performance improvements in that where, and, and by performance, I mean performance of the infrastructure, where you can start literally pulling out the carbon emissions of your data center operating environment with these little, uh, you know, tweaks and tunes. So we're pretty excited about those types of offerings um, in order to just help our customers better manage. The last one I'll talk about is what we view as, um, let's see, two or three years ago, we were calling it next generation. It's now hitting the now generation, and that's liquid cooling. So, you know, it, mm -hmm. if you've ever seen liquid and immersion cooling, it's actually pretty cool. You can you take basically just a standard processor on a standard motherboard, and you can, in immersion, you just dunk it straight in that liquid, and it keeps running. It, it's kind of amazing to see, um, because we've all lived our lives being terrified of even spilling water on our phones. Um, but um, we're working on that liquid cooling standards and how to drive deployments, especially in new data center buildouts, um, because a liquid cooling um, offering can bring down um, the power draw by 30% or more, and it allows you to actually add more performance at those lower power levels. So there's a lot of potential there, but there's a lot to be worked out on what are the right liquids um, and how do you install and manage that uh, that data center. So we're, we're pretty excited about the potential there. Yeah, very, very important topic. Now, another very important topic, and we already touched a little bit on it, is of course AI and Gen AI that's going on. So. Um, I mean, you again, you're in the heart of, of technology there with, with, with your uh, processors and uh, at Intel. And you must be having very secret conversations with top software companies about where this is all going. Like you said, the software and the hardware, they need to go hand in hand. So, so, what is, so, so you can also look a little bit in the future of AI, I can imagine. So tell us a little bit, what's going on? What's your view? How is AI, in your view, going to change everybody's life in society and in, and in business? Yeah. You know, uh, it is a true inflection point. I, I think that phrase probably gets used a lot, but I, it really is. So AI has been you know, worked on for over 50 years, the, the algorithmic definition. Mm -hmm. And, and it reached a bit of a breakthrough point, um, you know, uh, several years ago with that combination of cloud architecture releasing so much compute power, the advancements of, you know, networks, the security you know, advancements had just created this environment where um, AI was gave given room to start to, you know, um, explode a little bit. And that where it started first was with a lot of consumer applications, a lot of things like image recognition, tagging your friends in photos, it started to recognize who was who. Um, and, and then it evolved into recommendation systems. 
for those of you that shop online. I didn't include that as a you know defining characteristic of myself, but I confess there's uh, a few uh, <laughs> clips here or there I've participated in. And you see, you you buy something, and then it recommends you might also you know want this. That's all AI driven, and man, they get it right a lot of the time. Uh, I do want those other things. So it moved into recommender systems, and then it, it evolved into this. You know, how do we process language more naturally, and how how do we respond to you know human inputs? And I I look at what's happened with generative AI and these large language models, and I I, I really think it's AI on a rocket ship. Never before has mm-hmm. the capability entered the the common discourse in such an aggressive and quick way. I mean, you talk about you've got your, you know, middle school um, kid trying to do his homework using uh, chat GPT. And you've got your grandma talking about it because she's, you know, heard about it. I, I mean, it's just spanned everywhere. I, I'm still a believer that AI has the opportunity to improve the lives uh, and the experience of so many industries. Um, I think of healthcare, especially like just the opportunity to get to more personalized, more specialized um, recommendations, treatment plans that take into account what everyone else has, what has worked for everyone else that shares the same characteristics, uh, you know, in the world. So that human potential is fantastic. It also has challenges as well. You know, it, it can be harder and harder to um, figure out who actually did write that paper. Harder to figure out, is that mm-hmm. image real or was it altered or generated? So there's work to do on both sides, human potential and ensuring that it's you know used well and, and safely. When we look out into the future, though, we do see continued growth and, you know, evolution, uh, uh, of this generative AI. And, and even before it hit the you know common language, we had started working on, again, I go back to what is that system level infrastructure that is required mm-hmm. to deliver um, these types of solutions. And I, I think we've made tremendous progress there, uh, tremendous progress on our software offerings in the you know ecosystem and giving people the uh, visibility, the transparency to understand um, what and how their AI is being utilized and evolving. So we see it as a massive opportunity for Intel as a company. We see it as a tremendous opportunity mm-hmm. for our customers to continue to evolve their um, services. And we see it as a very exciting and dynamic space. So you'll hear lots more from us um, as we continue to you know invest there. Um, for my product line, especially, and we're just going to continue to involve, evolve those features that we've invested in and ensuring that they are delivering just really, really strong total cost of ownership benefits um, mm-hmm. within that general purpose infrastructure. So the the Xeon platform and, and Xeon processor is going to um, continue to be just an amazing AI solution that can deliver so much capability before you get to, you know, a GPU level uh, solution. So we really see that all playing together. Okay. Now, Lisa, let's talk a little bit more about yourself. Uh, You're the uh, general manager today of the uh, Intel Xeon products uh, uh, product line. So how would you describe fundamentally your role in the organization? And where is it that you spend most of your time? Yeah. Um, I, you know, I have a, a senior leadership role in the organization. So at that point, I feel like my my job is to 
unlock the very best of my teams. It, it's a pure scale mechanism. So anything that I mm -hmm. can do, even if I do that well, or it's in my area of domain expertise, um, I am hurting the organization at times if I'm choosing to do a bunch of it myself, because then I'm not scaling the capability of the entire organization. So where do I spend most mm -hmm. of my time? In meetings. And that's just the truth. Um, but I, I, you know, you have to remember um, it, the the business of delivering Xeon, meeting with customers, all of that. It, it's a big business. It takes a lot of people, and um, it's that reminder of while this is one of ten meetings in my day or fifteen, it might be the only time in a quarter or even a year that some of these engineers or other leaders um, engage with me. So it, it's really that reminder to mm -hmm. show up with the right leadership presence in every interaction, um, because this yep. is how you're going to scale your impact. And so much of that as a leader is the affinity and connection that team members feel towards mm -hmm. you and the vision you're setting. Okay, tell me a little bit, how, how big is the team? I mean, the Intel and total number of people, the Xeon business, the people that you uh, that you have to take care for? Yeah, well, I, I, I care for a lot. So Intel is over 100,000 employees. Then if you go down to mm -hmm. all the people that are, um, you know, touching, impacting, working on um, Xeon and, and represent my Xeon leadership team, it's over 10,000. Mm -hmm. And then when you go mm -hmm. into my direct organization, it's around 1,000 team members. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, there's a scale there and I engage at all of those levels. So, you know, every quarter, mm -hmm. um, myself and uh, our one of our senior fellows, uh, just absolute technical leader, top technical leader at the company, uh, focused on Xeon, he and I do a webcast that's open to all of the Intel employees. We want them to understand the strategy understand the progress we're making, hear the feedback we're getting from customers, talk about the next generation technologies. So again, it's all the things we do to build that connection so that people are committed mm -hmm. to the cause. Okay, so communication is a big thing, of course, but how would you how would you describe in general your management style? And, and what would you say is your secret sauce of building successful teams? Yeah. Um, well, two things. Um, I, um, I try to be a very purpose-driven uh, leader, but I do like to bring fun to work. We deal with incredibly mm -hmm. high-stress situations. We take very seriously the responsibility that we are accountable for much of the global infrastructure, like the world runs on Xeon. Um, but I also try mm -hmm. to make sure we're not taking ourselves too seriously all the time. It's good to have fun. And I also think that a little bit of humor, a little bit of levity, I, it tends to unlock more creativity from people. It's one of the ways that you can create and, and have work feel like a safe space to bring your ideas to the table. And again, um, at, at my level, in my position, if you're the only one with the ideas, then you've really screwed something up. So, you know, you've got to have more than just what what you can um, think of. So I, I, I'm just a big believer in, in that fun. And then for team success, um, I really believe in hiring for fit, not just for, you know, accomplishments, resume, technical depth, uh, you know, th those mm -hmm. characteristics of the work. So being able to do the job is incredibly important. 
but I'll pick a candidate mm-hmm. that's 80% of the way there versus one that's 98% of the way there if I feel like they complement the rest of the team better. They either add a skill set we don't have or they, you know, fit into, you know, some of the the system that we're building and um that fit and that dynamic of having um a team and a staff that is high performing high function, high trust, I think is just so important. Um, You know, you want a leadership team that can essentially operate and function without you. So um, that's, that's one of the things I really think hard about when I make hiring decisions. Okay. And uh, how, how easy is it for you? How difficult is it to, to attract really top people, top talent, and, and to, uh, to, to grow them and to retain them in, uh, in your business? Yeah. I mean, there's always a lot of opportunity um, that exists in in tech and in the um, uh, you know world that we live in. But I think if you're a, a good coach, if you respect people's experience and you respect their domain knowledge, um, and mm-hmm. um, you you know bring them into your community in the fold, I, I think retention gets a lot easier. Um, I, uh, I'm really proud of the fact that, you know, during, um, even during COVID when everyone went home, um, and that, you know, it's absolute uptick in tech hiring and all that, none of my staff members, uh, left the company. They all stayed and stayed committed to the cause during a, you know, a difficult and challenging time. And I I think it's not just because they're committed to me. I think it's because they're committed to each other. And they understand their connection to the business. So I think um, with, you know, some of those good behaviors, you really can, you know, retain people um, well. I, I like to say, you know, commit to helping your people grow and then actually take the action that you just committed to. Like you have to live into mm-hmm. those commitments. Um, I'm also a big believer. Tell people when they've done a good job. Like, you don't have to make that a secret. Let them know. Um, and I think some of these things are fairly simple, um, but a lot of leaders make it look too hard. <laughs> and, uh, you know, focusing on those basics. Um, I like to say, you know, you don't hire really great people to micromanage the heck out of them. You hire them <laughs> to unlock them. And so if you think of yep. your job as an unlocker um, more than anything else, then that's how you're going to behave. If tomorrow I walk around in uh, in your offices and I, I go to the coffee machine and I speak to a number of the people that work with you, what do you think when you're not around that they say about you? How do you think you're perceived as a leader? Well, I, I do consider myself to be an approachable leader, um, and I, I you know I do get uh, lots of feedback on that. So I think I am someone that um, people can relate to, you know, and connect to. I do try mm-hmm. to share. Um, with, you know, even the broad teams, uh, a bit about myself. Like, I don't want them to see me as just a work robot. I'm a person too. We recently have returned to the office, uh, you know, over the past several months, more than we were during, you know, the pandemic. And a a lot of people, oh man, that struggle of the challenge of figuring out all the schedules and and what I got used to. So I've tried to be open about Mm -hmm. that and share, yes, during the summer with the kids home, uh, there are certain things I got used to not having to juggle in the same way. So I'm going through it too, mm-hmm. but we're going to figure it out together. So I think um, I think they would describe me as someone that they feel like they know a bit and is you know approachable. Um, but at the same time, um, 
they know that if you're coming in for a discussion with me, a work topic, you you need to come prepared. So I, I don't display a lot of um, tolerance for haphazard use of time. So, um, mm-hmm. you know, okay. they know that that's, that's got to be, um, we got to take our work seriously. We're going to have fun, but we are going to take the work seriously. So come prepared and, and be ready. Um, and I, I think that, um, some of my, you know, leadership, you know, style or what I might be known for evolved a little bit during the pandemic. Um, because mm-hmm. ironically, as we went home and did more over video, I found that more of the conversation I had with team members was about that personal connection. Uh, and that's where they needed the support more so than even on the work. Um, so anyways, I, I, um, I like to think of myself as um, someone who's just uh, seen as really uh, committed to the team, committed to our, um, you know, success. Um, I, I like to think they really do enjoy working for me. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it, it can be hard to test some of those things. But I did say to one of my direct reports the other day, when I could tell that I had uh, annoyed him a bit with one of my decisions, I said, hey, if I was perfect, what would you guys talk about all the time? So <laughs> I try to give them a little space to, you know, have their, um, you know, their moments. So we've, uh, uh, we've come out of the lockdown and that has changed the way that we work. What's, the, what's the, your current policy of, of working at home, working in the office? How do you, uh, how do, you do that today? Yeah. So at Intel, we're still trying to be um, one of, if not the most flexible tech company, you know, in the world on, uh, and, and when I say in the world, I mean, uh, like the big ones um, in this space. So we're encouraging um, employees to come in two to three days a week to, you know, the <laughs> office and then choose and, you know, make some flexibility choices on those other days. So some weeks that might mean you are in four days, some weeks it might be two days. It just, you know, can uh, depend on your schedule. With my organization, I decided not to mandate particular days. Like we didn't say Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. I said, let's get started with this. Let's do this for six months and and see what's working. And we can always adjust. Um, And Mm -hmm. again, this is a few months old now, but people at first, uh, there was some concern like, hey, I've just, I'm so productive at home. I've gotten so used to how I, you know, get my work done. Um, so there was a little hesitation, but as people have come back, I do feel like they're starting to feel that value of human connection. And there is something about feeding off the energy of others, um, having the opportunity to brainstorm and um, be creative. I-, I think on days when I'm trying to, you know, drive strategy or uh, again, unlock creativity, being in the office around the team is the absolute best. If it's a day where I am working on documenting all of our, you know, annual reviews, that might be a good day for me to just be holed up in my office at home getting it done. So we're trying to all make those types of uh, balanced choices. So Lisa, let's do um, a deep dive. And I'm, I'm in the end, this is a deep dive interview, right? So let's take a next step and, uh, and let's talk about your personality because I think there's a there's a, a link, there's a connection, a correlation between how people are. Uh, wired, how they think about the personality and the successes they have in their in their jobs as a leader. And you shared with us that your MBTI profile is uh, ENFJ, a protagonist. And these are people with extroverted, intuitive feeling and judging personality traits. And these are typically warm, forthright types that love helping others. They tend to have strong ideas and values and they back their perspective with creative energy to achieve their goals. So it's a wonderful 
uh, profile. And I must say, many, many of the top digital leaders around the world have an, uh, a protagonist ENFJ uh, profile. But I want to use this to talk a little bit about your strengths and your, uh, and your development areas, your, uh, your uh, weaknesses, if you want. So I'm going to give you five strengths of, uh, of protagonists and you tell me where do you recognize uh, yourself and maybe give an example of, of how you are in that. So typical strengths of the protagonist is that they are receptive, they are very reliable, they're passionate, they're altruistic and they're charismatic. Where do you recognize yourself most and, and, and talk a little bit about that? Um, I think the passionate, reliable and charismatic are ones that just kind of jumped, uh, you know, out, uh, mm -hmm. out at me. Um, like on that reliable thing, when I've committed to something or someone, um, I, I treat that fairly uh, set in stone. So I will then, you know, bend all sorts of things, work all around the ways to make sure that I'm, I'm holding up and living, you know, into that uh, commitment. And then, you know, the passionate, I, um, I do bring a lot of energy to the work that we do. Uh, and that's how I show up. And I understand how hard that might be for some people. Like we do not all have the same personality type. So it's one of those <laughs> things that it comes naturally to me. I have then seen how people respond to it. So then I've invested in it as well. So it's a it's a strength built on a strength. Uh, and I, I see how when I show up like that, it can draw other people towards the challenge, towards the, the work. Um, so I, I view it as a flywheel effect. Um, and I think mm -hmm. it's sort of related that passionate and charismatic are, are sort of um, related. But I, I do as a leadership trait, um, I do try to, um, you know, again, I, I said this before, I try to show up to people as, you know, a, a real person that they can connect with. I am a real person. Like I have a life and, and I face all the same challenges. <laughs> and so I don't want to just be this, you know, exec that they, you know, don't hardly even know anything about. And so I think some of that does um, help people uh, feel that kind of connection. And, um, you know, I, I am extroverted. I, I don't have, it, it's not a challenge for me to, you know, meet new people and kind of make them feel comfortable and, and get them, you know, sharing. So th those are the ones I think that kind of jumped out at me when you said that. Now, nobody's perfect. No. Every uh, coin has two sides. So let's look at your darker side. Let's call them development areas. I mean, you have built uh, quite a successful career. So you have overcome a number of these uh, uh, weaknesses, I would say. So potential weaknesses for protagonists is that they can be unrealistic. They can be overly idealistic. They can be condescending, talking down to people. They can sometimes be too intense or overly empathetic. Again, where do you recognize yourself and how have you overcome maybe some of these weaknesses? Yeah, probably all of them other than overly empathetic. I have displayed or, <laughs> you know, experienced uh, at one time um, or another, or maybe uh, some of my staff would stay, say every once in a while at all times, uh, you know, just putting them all together in one bundle and delivering that. So I do have a certain intensity about me and I also have a pace. Mm -hmm. And um, I know that that pace is not necessarily for everything. And also, um, it doesn't always represent the amount of work that has to be done behind the scenes. And so I can be pushing 
forward progress at a, a rate that feels incredibly unnatural um, to people. So mm -hmm. it is an area where I have to, you know, watch myself. Um, the other one that's sort of related, uh, I am an idea generator. Um, and that can feel overwhelming to uh, the team sometimes because for whatever reason, I am not a black and white thinker. I am not a yes, no thinker. Um, there's never yes and there's never no. There's a million miles between saying yes and no to anything. Um, mm -hmm. And I like using time together to brainstorm, but I can be like an idea flutter. So um, I, I have a few things I do to manage myself through that that's also intended to help my team. And I'll try to say like, mm -hmm. as we start, okay, guys, this is just getting ideas on the table. I, this is not me expecting action out of this. Or I'll say, um, so I'm like, I just need to talk and think at the same time. Like this works for me. Like I'm not mm -hmm. directing you to do anything. I'm not asking for follow-up on this. I'm just thinking out loud and it's helping me process this complex situation we're dealing with. And then we can come back mm -hmm. to it. I also ask my team sometimes to record our meetings. So again, the the pandemic brought about some really great innovation in how we, you know, engage and meet. And sometimes I'll say, I'm throwing a lot of ideas out here. Can we just record it and then we can go back and, and listen or look and see if there's anything good there? Uh, because if everyone's trying to like scribble notes, then they're not necessarily unlocking their brain at the same time too. Mm -hmm. So I do have a couple of ways, like I just said, that I try to um, manage my, um, you know, intensities, if you will, um, and to at least give the team the sense that I recognize uh, them as well. Well, let's go again one level deeper from personality to values. And that is, uh, you, you shared with us that you have two kids, yes. nine and 13, yes. young kids that love Disneyland. And, uh, and so... Tell me a little bit, what are the values that you're passing on to the ch to your children? And what are the core values that you live by yourself? Yeah. You know, when I um, think of, uh, you know, values for me and just what um, resonates, and, and I, I did think about this, like, what is the type of, you know, uh, person I'm drawn to? It's integrity and honesty. And I've just mm -hmm. realized over the years of, whether it's, you know, managing teams or, you know, within, you know, your personal life, it's, it's just, um, you know, a must for me. And, and I can say, um, the bigger the disaster, the calmer I get. I've actually done crisis management for um, Intel. And I'll tell you a little joke I've said before. If you tell me that the, you know, Everything has absolutely blown up. There is an absolute crisis on our hands. You know, everyone's screaming in the streets. I'm like, okay, let's get started. Here's step one. If I forget my AirPods one day for work, I'm like, ah, I'm out. I can't do anything. I can't function. I don't know how to handle life without a headset. And um, so like little things can set me off. But the bigger the, the mess, uh, the calmer I get and the more just focused and uh, driven I get. And it's why I'm good for crisis management in that regard. So I can handle colossal messes. I can handle screw ups that shouldn't have happened and we should have known better, but I can't handle cover ups. As I say, like, I, I just, I can't handle it. I, I need no. the people around me that will tell me the truth. I can help us out of any sticky situation and I need them to trust mm -hmm. me enough to tell me the truth. 
Because if it starts to get covered up and then I'm doing the unpeeling, I go into a much different um, like mood and mode about just, I, I do not like to work in that environment when I don't feel like I can trust what I'm hearing from the team members. So I think it's just really important. Get it on the table. We know what we're dealing with and then we can really work together to solve big problems. Okay. Now, Lisa, you clearly have created great success, but we all have our screw-ups and our failures. We were just talking about it. So what was one of my favorite questions in these interviews? Why, if you look back on your career, what was may, maybe your most brilliant failure that you have uh, encountered? And what did you learn from it? Um, you know, I, I've had the unfortunate, um, you know, experience of having to disappoint my customers in some really big ways. Um, not something I'm mm -hmm. particularly proud of. Um, and I, you know, <laughs> I recognize my role in that, but there is nothing so devastating as going out to your customers and having to tell them you're slipping a product, you're changing the schedule on them. They've mm -hmm. done all the work they've spent millions of dollars, sometimes hundreds of millions of dollars to be ready on the time you told them you were going to deliver a product. And for whatever reason, you didn't get it ready on that time frame. And to some extent, it doesn't even matter the reason. I mean, they always want to know. But the point is, they bet their business on you. And they were planning on mm -hmm. launching their products, their services, their capabilities, their digital transformation on what you told them. And then you have to go in and reset that. Um, and it's, it's um, uh, yeah, it's devastating. And, and you know this impact that you're having. Um, and it just, it's so um, draining. It's so negative. Um, it hurts trust in relationships. Now, obviously, you can handle mm -hmm. it well. You can be authentic. You can be transparent. You can tell them the minute you know. So you can use best known methods to make it the best of the worst. But there is is nothing worse than disappointing your customers like that. Uh, so I took that uh, pretty seriously. And unfortunately, I have absolutely had to do that. Um, but you do learn from it. And you, you know, you evolve and come out of it. I try to share that experience with as many people as possible. Because not everybody at our mm -hmm. not all of our 10,000 Xeon people talk to customers but I want them to hear and feel what that disappointment looks like so that when we make our commitments, we actually think of like, my customer is betting on us and make those commitments with that mindset. So it's changed some of the ways in which we, um, how we set schedules, how we structure them, the type of updates we give along the way to give confidence, uh, all of that. So we've, we've taken action out of the the reality of having to do this. But I do consider it a truly, you know, a, a most challenging moment in a career, most difficult to um, kind of like pull yourself up from the bootstraps, um, you know, to readjust and adapt to. And um, one of the hardest things you have to do is call up your customers. Let's look again at the flip side of this and, and let's look at the at the bright side. I mean, uh, if you reflect back on your on your career, what was maybe the the best thing that has have ever happened to you? And, and would you care to share that? Oh, sure. Um, I mean, 
so many great things. Like, again, I, I take such pride in being, um, you, you know, again, part of this entire digital foundation that runs the world. Um, I, you know, it, it's so cool. And then I have some experiences from when I was in Intel IT, where I, um, I know the work that myself and my team did made the experience of being an Intel employee better. And I, I feel a lot of pride mm -hmm. for uh, some of those. And, you know, I can I can tell you about them. But probably the best thing that ever happened to me personally was when I first experienced true sponsorship. So we talk a lot about mentorship, mm -hmm. but this was sponsorship. This was our CIO at the time and one of her staff members putting me into a job that I would say... CV wise, I was holistically unqualified for you. Mm -hmm. I, I wouldn't have made it through a first screen <laughs> and they sat me down. And I, I mean, I distinctly remember sitting with them, having this conversation and they said, you're ready for this. You can mm -hmm. do this. We believe in you and it's going to be great. I wouldn't have even applied for that role. So I moved into a, you know, it was my first big move into a senior level management with a global organization spanning 60 countries, you know, a, a lot of employees, multiple levels of management. And it was, you know, all new to me in a domain that wasn't holistically mine. So it, it had learning curves everywhere. There was nothing I didn't need to learn. <laughs> but what I'll say is when you get sponsored like that, I, you know, I probably for several months fell asleep every night with my head hitting my laptop because I was studying, learning, and I knew like, I will die before I disappoint these two mm -hmm. people that sponsored me. I, like it will yep. not happen. They have put, they have cloaked me in their personal credibility to give me this role and I will never do anything but be the best, impress them, you know, handle it, lead and, uh, you know, own this role. Um, it's, it's too important. So that sponsorship is amazing, but it is earned. And then your response to that sponsorship mm -hmm. has to be, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, you know, tackle this or die trying. Is that a typical Intel thing where there's a, I mean, is there a coaching culture or a mentoring uh, culture and, and does that go up and down? Do you mentor some people uh, as well? Yeah, I, I think we have a lot of mentoring culture. I think we're still growing in these leadership roles of understanding what true sponsorship looks like. And I don't mm -hmm. know, um, like, I honestly don't know if you can become a true sponsor until you've experienced it yourself. So I knew once I moved yeah. into that role, you know, it, for me, it was a, a senior director role. It was the one right before I became a VP. I spent six months just grinding to make sure I was able to handle it, to, you know, do the job, to lead the team, to figure it all out. And then once I had my, you know, feet under me, I had this realization, I'm a senior leader at the company. I mean, I wasn't a VP yet, but I was just one level below. And it's my job to start sponsoring people. So I need to start looking down you know, one or two levels into the organization and pulling people into bigger roles or pulling them into things that they, um, you know, maybe don't see in themselves that they can do. So for me, that was the moment that it became a leadership characteristic of mine. And I still, you know, to this day, seek to do that. Yes, I will mentor. Um, I'll also fire mentees if we've had multiple rounds of advice giving and no action is taken. 
Um, but the sponsorship is something where, you know, I grab someone and say, you over here, you got this, like, let's go. Um, and so I, I think it's um, so important as leaders to do that and to do it with some thoughts in mind on um, diversity of experience, of talent, of thought process, not to just do it for people that look exactly like you. Yeah. Now, Lisa, you come across to me as somebody's high energy, <laughs> you're very passionate, you want the results, you challenge uh, people. What, what needs to happen that at the end of the week, when you go back to your family, when do you feel really, really happy of, of uh, and, and what is it that maybe that drives you really in your work and your life? Yeah, you know, there, there's kind of two things. There's um, one is obviously on the, the work side of it, it's, you know, hitting those commitments, working through those difficult challenges, like seeing the team um, you know, get aligned around a new strategy or execute to the strategy, like just, you know, drive, drive, drive. Um, and, and so when we make big progress there, that obviously feels great. But the, um, the longer that I uh, have, you know, been in a, a leadership level position, the more of the balance of all of that has shifted towards um, the best weeks or the best times for me or when I feel like I have unlocked someone else. And mm -hmm. it's like when I have, you know, driven a sponsorship a uh, action, when I have seen someone break through on something I've been coaching them for a while and they, they, they put it all together. Like when I see that progress from whether it's my team, a peers team, like it, it doesn't, you know, matter who, but when I see the, the people that I, I work with and I seek to inspire and grow actually achieve growth and, and demonstrate it, those are the things that, you know, kind of uh, light me up. I remember um, in the last couple of years, a uh, promotion that I was able to, um, you know, give out. And this one um, was when we had, you know, worked on uh, for a couple of years. And when I heard, you know, when I got the news as the leader that the promotion had gone through, um, I recognized, I was like, I actually am feeling more like emotional satisfaction about this than my own mm -hmm. most recent promotion, which was great. I mean, you know, like it's great. It's all, it's good to get promoted. Obviously I'm advancement driven. You don't get here if you're not, but just that, yep. that recognition that like, I am more excited about having helped someone achieve this level and their career goals um, was kind of a yep. eye opener for me. So high level of energy. Yeah. How, how do you relax when you get home in the weekends yeah. during holidays? How do you uh, fill your batteries again? Yeah. Well, I did tell you, I, I really love pickleball. It is so fun. Um, and I know maybe some of you uh, listening are tennis players. And I know there's, you know, sometimes tennis player pickleball tension. Give it a try. If you've never tried it, anyone can pick it up in about 30 minutes. So I have a couple groups I love to play uh, pickleball with. I just, it's just fun for me. Um, and I love to read. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I love uh, to read. Um, I also, I genuinely enjoy spending time with my children, but I don't call it relaxation. <laughs> That's just usually not what it ends up being. We're running around to a lot of sports, a lot of different fields, a lot of different mm -hmm. games. And I, I, it's funny because I thought, man, how do 
before I had kids, how do parents handle all this, like spending all weekend sitting in the bleachers? But I realize uh, when it's your own kid, it's actually super fun. It's great to see them grow and you get to know the whole team and their friends. And uh, so I've actually really mm-hmm. enjoyed that kind of being a sports mom uh, more than I uh, thought I would. Okay, and what is it that you like to read? What uh, what genre? Oh, of uh, of books? Uh... Oh my gosh, I I um primarily fiction, though I do like um leadership uh, stories and books. I I like personal stories more than like how to manuals. Mm-hmm. Um, and I read an inordinate amount of World War II, uh, either fiction or uh, nonfiction oh. books. Um, so I don't know. It's just mm-hmm. like. A, a genre and a time that you know fascinates me and is also something we should obviously never forget. Okay, now Lisa, do you have a do you have a personal mantra, a saying that helps you in difficult times to to help you make a decision or work with people? Yeah, um, it's a bit yogic, um, and uh, probably for me, it's find your breath. Um, I am a, mm-hmm. I'm, um, I'm, I'm quick witted. I'm quick with my tongue. Um, so I have tried to, uh, coach myself over the years to moderate success, um, to think at times before, um, you know, speaking and to be more purposeful. So, you know, you're dialing up the contrast on a certain topic, do it on purpose. It's Mm -hmm. totally okay when you're doing it on purpose. Don't do it because you (laughs) kind of just, it happened. So find your breath is, um, probably for me, the, the one that I use the most. Okay. Lisa. You're featured in the third edition of our CRNet cookbook, uh, which is a collaboration that we're doing together with Red Hat and with Intel. Tell us a little bit about your cooking skills and, and, and what's your favorite recipe? Okay. I, I actually do think I'm a, a, a very good um, cook and I love it. However, um, I like to do more of the like kind of standout, um, more interesting, uh, like nicer dinners. I do get exhausted by the fact of feeding a family uh, seven days a week. So it's like, (laughs) is it taco night again? What are we doing? So sometimes that gets to me. But um, I have, I think, an amazing um, uh, spaghetti sauce recipe that I just, I think it's standout. And so that's uh, one of my signature dishes. Mm -hmm. I have a carrot cake that my family has given the highest rating, which is restaurant quality. We call it RQ. <laughs> um, it's our highest rating. And we actually say when it's better than a restaurant is when you actually earn RQ. And then I have a really good chocolate chip cookie recipe that, uh, yeah, it includes some drawn butter and all of that. Like, it's real good. So I'll, I'll make okay. you some next time. And can we, we publish it? Yeah, yeah, well, I'm looking forward to that. But could we publish maybe one of your recipes in our cookbook? Oh, then? sure, yeah. If we're doing real uh, real recipes, I'd be happy to send one in. <laughs> Lisa, thank you so much for your time. We're coming to the last uh, question uh, of this interview. And that's, I mean, you have made quite a career. And so people that are watching these interviews, some of them are highly ambitious and they want to follow in, uh, in your footsteps. So what is the advice that you would give to future leaders that want to build a big career in, uh, in technology? Yeah. Um, you know, it does take a certain level of, you know, commitment and and focus. So I, I wouldn't want to, um, you know, mislead anyone on that. Like, you do have to, um, you know, push and, and drive and take on the bigger assignments and really stretch yourselves. But if I were to think of the um, biggest piece of advice, it's one that I actually got from a, a mentor and friend several years ago. Um, and it was really 
still do all of this while being authentic to yourself. Now, you can always work to create the best version of yourself. So I'm not saying don't grow and improve. Absolutely do that. But you cannot afford to burn energy trying to pretend you're someone that you're not. And so bring your whole mm -hmm. self to the problems. I don't necessarily look like the average, you know, executive in my position and role. And I, I don't mean that as like a physical looks. I mean, from my background, my domain expertise, the experience that I've had, uh, you know, all of those things. But when you put it together and I bring the heart of what is me to these challenges, I do believe I am the best person for this role in the world. And that confidence only comes from, again, being true to yourself, uh, being authentic and really, you know, pushing yourself forward. So that's what I'd say to people that are kind of in any phase of their career. Okay, super. So Lisa, thank you again. I look forward to tasting your um, uh, spaghetti uh, sauce, your carrot cake and your chocolate <laughs> cookies. It was really a pleasure uh, and, uh, and thank you so much. Thank you.